Welcome to SL Advisors Talks Markets. I'm Simon Lack. At SL Advisors, we know it's important to stay ahead of inflation. We think about where interest rates are going and what this means for markets. Pipeline companies may offer inflation protection through the energy transition. We identify other sectors with the ability to maintain their margins when prices are rising. Nothing we say should be construed as a sale of securities, which can only be made through the relevant prospectus. So on this podcast, I'm very excited to have Michael Mark, Senior Vice President with Next Carbon Solutions, who is going to talk about their initiatives in carbon capture. So, Michael, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I look forward to uh, to our discussions. And my partner, Henry Hoffman, is also on. And Henry is going to be leading the conversation with Michael. So, Henry, great to have you on the podcast, too. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, we just think it's an incredibly interesting time now in the world markets. And we think what's happening in Europe, um, you know, is, is kind of a tectonic shift in the way people are going to think about energy security going forward. And then combining that with uh, various green initiatives and climate change. From our perspective, uh, you know, we really see the world going uh, in the direction of uh, both LNG as a replacement for coal to cut pollution, as well as to reduce emissions. And then, which really hasn't gotten a lot of attention, is this carbon uh, capture and sequestering uh, side, of, side of things, which I think long term, that fits in fabulously well for all midstream companies, which is really what we focus on. And so, you know, next decade really checks both those boxes, you know, of the story that we think could be a very big and underappreciated story long term. You know, so with that, I wanted to, you know, first get your thoughts on any kind of observed shift in customer behavior or discussions since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, you know, the, the sanctions. I think we've done four rounds of sanctions and uh, a fifth shall be coming up soon. What kind of are you seeing a, a change in behavior of the people you're talking to in the offtake uh, for a commercial offtake? Yeah, so thanks thanks for having me on. I, as to the question, obviously the impetus for for change uh, is a tragic one. Uh, specific to the to the business of LNG, I think there has been a significant change in the I guess thought processes from buyers, maybe more aggressive towards a desire to to replace existing supply that, that might have been pipe gas into Europe from Russia, or just filling or accelerating conversations in Asia around uh, transactions that we were already in discussions with, plus some new incomings. I've been in this business for a long time, uh, more than 20, probably approaching 30 years. And, and this is as strong a, a market as, as uh, I've seen in in my uh, in my lifetime and i think it's good because as you state i think lng provides a energy source that is is very much needed in in europe and in asia particularly an energy source such as uh, what is available from a rio grande lng which has a carbon capture component to it meaning that it it is uh, uh, without without argument will be the, the greenest lng available in the world upon implementation of, of both the uh, the liquefaction piece of the business as well as the carbon capture piece of the business. Uh, great. So would you say you've seen um, 
more of a shift in the European in your discussions with the European uh, customers than the Asian, or have you seen a pronounced shift as well from uh, kind of the uh, Asian-based customers? Yeah, it, it is it is uh, all hands on deck, both in Europe as, and in Asia. You know, I, I think uh, I think what um, what the catalyst of, of the war has done is accelerated people's views about mandates, a need to go ahead and transact to acquire term supply. I think that uh, they're lacking that catalyst. The, the demand was clearly there. Uh, it was just a matter of how how quickly companies were looking or buyers were looking to actually execute. We at, at Next Decade have been forecasting a, a, a demand and supply imbalance out to 2030 timeframe for some time now, uh, nearly two two and a half years probably. We've been talking about this. I think that the the analysts that look at the industry are catching up now and realizing how tight the market truly has been and will be in the future. So I think you're seeing buyers recognizing that as well, who were being advised by those analysts and industry pundits were trusting that analysis. And I think some of the reality of, of, of where we are in the world with respect to that uh, global uh, supply and demand balance is, is becoming more focused, resulting in you know, I think more more accelerated uh, transactional activity, and I think what you'll see out of this is the number of projects. Uh, you know, FIDing as as we've stated, we anticipate FIDing our trains one and two in the second half of this year, and we remain uh, with that public statement. Great. Shifting to, if you could just provide kind of an overview of how you'll plan to finance the first 11 million tons that you plan to FID in the second half this year. And, uh, and more importantly, what you, uh, you know, is there, has there been a change in sentiment from those, you know, infrastructure or private equity firms that would come in from the equity piece? And then has there been a change of sentiment from banks and their willingness to, to on the debt side, uh, to finance the project since the invasion of Ukraine? I, I, what I can say is our approach to, to financing, again, I, I'm, I'm not the CFO of the company, I would leave it to to him to to really talk in in depth about this particular topic. But our approach to to financing Rio Grande LNG will be, you know, we're we're very much the traditional approach, a debt and equity component. We will approach uh, the markets in in a standard way. Our contracts um, will be either, we believe, Henry Hub based or indexed, or uh, we do have a component of a Brent uh, indexed uh, contract with Shell right now in our portfolio. These are our very traditional contractual arrangements in SPAs. We believe the financing community is comfortable with, um, and and we you know again expect to to do that part of of the transaction in in a way that is is kind of regular way that you've seen in, in past transactions by other projects that which have been built. In terms of whether or not there's been a change in sentiment since the the war began in the Ukraine on in terms of uh, equity and debt finance uh, financiers. I, I really can't speak to that. I, I haven't haven't had any exposure, and and I would be uh, I would be speculating. I, I just don't know. Okay, great. Yeah, no problem. Uh, and then turning to 
kind of permits and the uh, regulatory environment. You guys are, are kind of through most of it for Rio Grande, but do you foresee, what do you see any more holdups for Rio Grande facility? And then uh, specifically talking to the CCS side of the business. Okay, well, with, with respect to Rio Grande, it, it is shovel ready. We have all permits required to, to move forward with the project today if we wanted to. We have uh, in front of the FERC Commission a limited request for approval of our carbon capture project at Rio Grande. We were required to put that in front of the FERC because it is being attached to a FERC regulated asset. Permit for the uh, carbon capture and uh, sequestration asset is not linked to the Rio Grande asset. So we can begin construction for Rio Grande while we await approval of the CCS project. So they they are not uh, interdependent, they are independent. But we do expect FERC to approve our CCS project at Rio Grande LNG sometime in first half of 2022. And we don't expect any any significant issues to arise out of that. What we are seeing, I think, in front of the FERC, information from the FERC, is a a greater emphasis on uh, climate change and uh, environmental justice and what they have have recently um, stated. We foresaw some of this coming and and which was part of the reason why we initiated the process of trying to decarbonize Rio Grande LNG. First, we we knew it was the right thing to do. But secondly, we were were concerned about uh, implications on permit and and on uh, license to operate, if you will, uh, if you had not decarbonized your asset, and and that is uh, the approach we we took. Um, and as as best as I know, we're the only project to address uh, the issues of climate change and, and environmental justice. I do expect, or we do expect, I think, in the future that that uh, companies will be required to uh, initiate some type of mitigation plan with the FERC as, as they begin to have to update their permits or they look to permit new new projects. As, as you're aware, any project that uh, emits greater than 100,000 tons per annum must, un, under the guidance of the FERC, current guidance of the FERC, must submit a, a mitigation plan. So, you know, our expectation, there could be some delays or some requirements po- put on on companies, but we we've voluntarily done the work that we've done and submitted the CCS project for approval because you know we think it's the right thing to do. We think it's advantageous for our project commercially. We ultimately formed a second business at, at uh, Next Decade, which is providing service to third-party customers to do post-combustion capture of their CO2 and to transport it and permanently store it, an end-to-end solution, if you will, which is uh, driven off of the technology and processes that we developed at Rio Grande LNG. We're bringing those processes, carbon capture and storage processes, to third parties currently. Okay, great. When you talk about the carbon solutions business, I know in your presentation, I believe you you have a a, uh, run rate of the first 10 projects could be 400 million or so. You know, where do you see that the value of of the carbon solutions business? What could that be? There's lots of facilities, right, that that emit a lot of CO2. Where do you see that kind of developing out for the long term, and and kind of what kind of time frame 
are we on for that business? Yeah, as you said, we we we've made a public statement about uh, our our ability to move to to construction on on ten projects over the next twenty four to thirty six months. We we do believe we'll we'll be announcing some feed arrangements with customers in in the coming weeks and months, which will initiate that process. Uh, it takes about four years uh, from uh, pre-feed to, to COD to, to construct these projects. Our process is an end-to-end one, so we look to design, manage construction, operate, capture, transport, and store, and, and monitor the, the storage of the CO2 for term. It is, I think, a unique offering that, that's being made to the to the market relative to others who who are dabbling in in portions of the value chain. As you're probably aware, the the world emits some 50 billion uh, metric tons of of uh, CO2 per annum. Uh, so there is a huge opportunity set here. A, a significant part of that comes from energy related product that results from both pre-combustion and post-combustion uh, burning of the fossil fuel. Our processes can capture both pre-combustion as well as post-combustion uh, CO2. Where we, I think, are differentiated uh, in the most is in the post-combustion CO2 capture. I think many believe uh, that that's the easy part of the value chain. We, we actually think it is probably the, the most significant and difficult piece of the design. Uh, we think transport and storage is less uh, less technically challenging. And so we believe that, uh, you know, the opportunity set presented for next carbon solutions is a significant one. And obviously, ultimate value will, will be driven off of the percentage of market share we're able to acquire. But we're very bullish on this business and believe it could be a significant of next decade overall operations, the near future, but but clearly in the future. Just clarify on the carbon capture, the pre-combustion and post-combustion, just for yes. listeners who are not familiar with, with what those different elements mean. Okay, so I'll use an LNG facility as an example, okay? All LNG facilities will separate CO2 from the inlet gas because which is a requirement because if you if you have co2 in the stream as it enters the liquefaction process it will it, it will begin to freeze and, and create issues in in the production process so everybody captures that and and the co2 captured in pre-combustion off a typical lng facility using gas-fired turbines is call it 20 to 30, 25 to 30 percent of the total co2 footprint emitted by that facility. So most everybody, you know, everyone is capturing, you know, 25% to 30% of the CO2 in their pre, in a pre-combustion process. Typically what happens is, is that CO2 goes through a, a separate process and, and ultimately is, is, is emitted into the atmosphere. What people are doing now is, is capturing that and piping it, compressing it, and, and will likely move it to, to storage. So that's the pre-combustion piece. You also have gas that is running through these turbines and is, is as the fossil fuel, the natural gas is burned in the turbines, the flue gas, which emits from the turbines, 
has a significant amount of CO2 in it as well. That is the post-combustion piece, representing, you'd call it 70 to 75% of total CO2 emissions. That is the piece of the puzzle that most companies are not capturing, at least in the LNG space or in, in most other industrial processes, because there's not a, a significant amount of focus or has not been a significant amount of focus on post-combustion capture over time. We have developed a process that captures that post-combustion CO2. We cool the flue, flue gas stream, which can range anywhere from 250 degrees Fahrenheit to up to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We do that without the use of water. We have, uh, that's one of our proprietary processes, which we've patented and have patents pending on, which is a significant additional ESG attribute of our process relative to others. We cool that gas, we, we run it through a, a, a typical uh, amine absorber process, stripping out the CO2. The rich amine is then run through a regenerator. The CO2 is decoupled from the amine. This pure stream of CO2 is then piped, compressed, and will be piped and stored uh, permanently in, in a, a saline aquifer. So when, when you talk to people about you know, what they're doing in terms of carbon capture, uh, I think most companies are currently talking about pre-combustion capture and storage. In many cases, that is a, 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 a lesser significant part of the overall CO2 emissions from uh, an industrial process. You will see some, com uh, some industries which have, very, you know, because of the process that they're undertaking, will have some significant amounts of pure, near pure streams of CO2 from just coming from the process. In those circumstances, typically what will happen is that CO2 can be captured. There's usually a bit of a dehydration process that needs to occur, and then it will go into compression and be stored. Pre-combustion separation of CO2 from gas, uh, inlet gas, and the capture of pure stream, purer stream CO2 uh, emissions resulting just from industrial processes represent the bulk of what is happening in the world today in terms of CO2 capture and sequestration. Where we are focused with customers third party as well as RGLNG is the capturing of that post-combustion piece, which is the most significant piece of overall CO2 emissions. And the ca capture of that through our proprietary process and the, the piping to and uh, compression piping and st permanent storage of that CO2. We believe that is where the bulk of the CO2 emissions in the world come from, at least from industrial processes, power generation and the like. And that is where our focus is in Next Carbon Solutions, assisting companies in capturing that CO2 source in a meaningful way, uh, which is about 95% uh, of the post-combustion CO2 is what we will capture, uh, which is obviously a significant piece of the puzzle in, in decarbonizing the asset and ultimately decarbonizing uh, global emissions. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a good explanation. And so just to be clear, the CO2 that's generated when you chill the methane to get it onto a tanker, that's, as I understand, also captured or will be captured in your facility, right? So the production of the, the LNG, yes, we will strip roughly 25 to 30% of the CO2 uh, at the inlet of the, the facility. And then that will flow through the process 
to be to form the LNG that will be loaded on the ship. The process also requires a great deal of energy to run the system. That energy at our facility is generated by gas-fired turbines. We capture the CO2 emissions from the, the gas-fired turbines as well, resulting in about greater than 90% of the CO2 of the entire process will be captured and permanently stored from our process, making our LNG produced out of Rio Grande LNG the greenest LNG available in the world. Yeah, that's perfect. That's that's, that's a great story. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, why don't you go on. Yes, Mike. I know we're coming up on the end of our time here, uh, but I think it would be helpful if you could just you know comment and elaborate on government incentives. You know, specifically the 45 Qs and the European credit. I mean, carbon market. You know, how important are these? Do they need to? You know, in the case of the 45 Qs and Build Back Better, it was talked about increasing those dramatically. Just comment on, uh, I guess, the importance of them and may potentially the importance of doing more from from an incentive incentive using government's incentivizing uh, carbon capture. Yeah, certainly. So uh, you refer to the 45Q, that's a, an income tax credit in the IRS code uh, relative to uh, equipment used to capture and permanently store, or well, capture and store uh, CO2. Currently, that legislation um, is a tax credit and uh, for carbon capture and storage is leveled at $50 per metric ton capture. There are also, with each million tons uh, of carbon, of CO2 that is captured and permanently sequestered, you can earn a carbon credit for that. One carbon credit equals 1 million tons of sequestered CO2. These two products, the tax credit and the verified uh, emissions reduction credit, are um, separate types of transactions and are additive. As I said, the the 45Q tax credit is currently $50 in the US. There are various other similar instruments uh, globally, but but the US market has the the most advanced and and probably the most beneficial incentive uh, globally. The majority of of the rest of the world is utilizing the, the verified emission reduction credits as the process for valuing carbon reduction. There is the EU ETS, which is a a compulsory market. It's currently trading USD somewhere between $75 and $100 per metric ton. In the US, there are some traded markets. There's one in California. There's also some um, fledgling new uh, traded markets of of carbon credits and a voluntary uh, traded market. Those in, in California are trading specifically at, at higher prices, but the voluntary market in the U.S., which is on some exchanges in the U.S., uh, are trading you know, around $15 to $16 per metric ton. It's our view that ultimately you know, the combination of any government incentive plus the traded market will need to be around $100 or more incentivize investment to achieve global reduction in carbon. We're kind of different as to whether that is an 85-45Q and a $15 VERC or a $50-45Q and a $50 VERC. We think it's we need $100 or more to uh, uh, generate change. We think if you look at uh, you know a number of, of folks who work in the industry uh, and, and view the industry, I think there's, there's general agreement around that $100 level. 
We do believe over time that, that these uh, verified emission reduction credits will be traded cross-border. Uh, that is foundational in the Paris Agreement, Article 6. I mean, we believe that in COP26, there was some movement to, to move towards that. There are groups, a CCS Plus initiative, working with a, with a company called Vera, is a, is a company that will um, assess projects and verify them that they are, are, are properly capturing, storing, and measuring carbon that is, that is sequestered and will provide certificates associated with that. We are working with CCS Plus and with Vera in that process. The process we're working on is, is a standardization of kind of global view of, of what a, a proper project looks like, how to measure CO2 captured, and, and, and what permanent sequestration looks like in order to establish a global product that, that will be tradable uh, on commodity markets. And we see this in, in the relative near future and that, that the value of those will hover uh, or approach the $100 plus range, which makes CCS at least using Next Carbon Solutions processes, proprietary processes, work kind of all day, regardless of industry. Our execution fits well within that level. And in fact, fits well within the $85 carbon credit, or I'm sorry, tax credit, 45Q tax credit that is being um, bantered about it in Congress through the Build Back Better plan or, or the, the energy plan that arises after that. We do think that the government uh, in the U.S. will pass some type of legislation that will raise uh, the, the carbon capture 45Q to the $85 level. And importantly, we think the legislation will include a direct pay process as opposed to a tax credit, which will um, enhance the, the market viability of carbon capture because it will reduce the dependence on tax equity structures, which are traditionally expensive and lacking depth of market that would allow broad uh, implementation of carbon capture, which is obviously the goal that the legislation wants is a broad application of carbon capture to decarbonize our industries. And it's good legislation. It, it, it will work towards, I think, a much broader application of these technologies to reduce CO2 uh, in the atmosphere, which is what we all want. Okay, yeah, that's great. And then I guess one last one from me is who, you know, I'm interested in who are the, who are the most, who are the largest uh, advocates for green LNG from the buyer side? Is if you're if you're thinking of your customers or people that you're in discussions with, you know who would who or is is it the European majors? Who's the one that really from the demand side is calling for saying, look, we really want to see more green LNG? Well, I think that uh, it, it is. It's kind of how would I say this? It's very specific to individual buyers. Europeans all obviously have a incentive given the legislative process over there. I talked to you about the EU ETS uh, and being a compulsory market. That means that companies are, are, are required to mitigate their emissions in, the U, in, in Europe, and they must do that either through greener products or through the acquisition of credits. That doesn't necessarily apply to, to Asian markets. 
uh, as much, but but it's it's clear that there are Asian buyers who are also interested in in the product as well. Uh, there are other other you know buyers who are interested in gaining access to these carbon credits because they recognize the potential for the carbon market to grow and for these carbon credits to have value that they can then uh, trade in the open market. So it, it's really dependent on specific customers, their own internal views of, of market and opportunity. Uh, so I, I really can't equate it to any single single set or geographic region. It, it's it's really quite specific to each customer. That was a great interview with Michael Mott, Senior VP Next Carbon Solutions. The day after we taped the podcast, Next Decade announced a 20-year LNG deal with a Chinese utility. This makes financing their Rio Grande project even more likely, and the stock price moved sharply higher over the next couple of days. Michael did a great job telling the story, and although he must have known about the deal announcement, he didn't give anything away. He just made us look a little bit smarter, which is always a nice thing. Thank you for listening to SL Advisors Talks Markets. To find more episodes like this one, go to our website, sl-advisors.com. There you can sign up for our blog, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and follow us on Twitter, at Simon Lack.